Almighty and everlasting God, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, Lord, we come before you this morning on this Lord's Day. Lord, none of us deserve to be here, yet behold, here we are. Help us, Lord. Help us to worship you. Help us to think on things above where you are seated. Please help me, O Lord, weak as I am, that you might give me grace to preach your word this day. From apart from you, I can do nothing. Pray that you'd open the ears of your people here this morning, that you'd bless this word, that you would be glorified, that your saints would be edified, and those who are not in Jesus Christ, those who are not Christians here this morning, would be convicted and brought into the sheepfold under the great shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Please bless this word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was saying this morning, we gather here together as Christians to commemorate our weekly remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And especially on this Lord's Day, we are here remembering the 504th anniversary of the Reformation. Truly is a glorious day, and I hope to ignite your hearts. I hope the Lord ignites your hearts to think about these things. Therefore, I found it fitting that the message I should bring to you this morning should be a continuation or sequel to the message that I brought to many of you this last spring on justification by faith. And as Peter says in his second epistle, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. So I look to remind you this morning of the things that I spoke back in May and to add on to that. So this message this morning is entitled, Sola Fide, The Rallying Cry of the Redeemed. If you don't know what sola fide is, I will explain that, give some context, and then we will dive in. So it has been said that the Reformation, the form or the the structure of the Reformation was sola scriptura or scriptures alone. By scriptures alone do we know what we know about God. But the essence or form, excuse me, the essence of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. So the thing that gave the Reformation its structure was the scriptures, but then the essence and heart of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. This is where we start getting the five solas of the Reformation. Perhaps some of you are aware of them. The five solas, the Latin phrases which emphasize the heart of what the Reformation was about. The first three that were emphasized early on in the Reformation were sola gratia, by grace, by grace alone, Sola fide, by faith alone, and sola scriptura, scriptures alone. Later on, as the Reformation continued, two more solas were added, which was sola Christos, which is Christ alone, and sola Deo Gloria, which is for the glory of God alone. These are the five solas of the Reformation. Now, each of these solas should have its own place, and I would love to expound all five of them and give them each their own due weight, but... For the sake of time, I only can talk about one this morning, and that is sola fide, by faith alone. So, the presupposition that I'll have this morning for everyone, that I'm presuming is sola scriptura, the structure of the Reformation. 
which is we know what we know about God. We know what we know about the truth because of the scriptures. The scriptures are alone are sufficient to function as the infallible rule of faith for the church. Their authority comes from their nature as being God-breathed revelation. So that is the presupposition I'm bringing to you this morning, is that all of these things I'm about to say are coming from the scriptures. So, what we're going to do here is take this in two chunks. One, we're going to look at sola fide, justification by faith alone. And then two, we're going to look at the great cloud of witnesses. So one, sola fide. Back in the spring, we looked at this question that Job asks in the Old Testament. He says, how shall a man be just before God? So, as I said, this is the greatest dilemma facing each and every one of us. Every human being that has lived on this earth, that is the greatest question that they must face. How will we be just or how will we be righteous before God? So we looked at this in three terms and we'll go over them again. One, what is justification? Two, why do we need to be justified? And three, how are we justified? So number one, what is justification? As we saw, justification is a legal or forensic term. It is something that is uh, used in debate or in a courtroom. Justification is something that is God declaring us righteous. It's not God making us righteous. We saw this in the scriptures here, Luke 7, 29. And when all the people heard him, that is Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptism with the baptism of John. So we see here these people hearing the, the Lord Jesus Christ preaching weren't making God righteous by saying they justified God. They were declaring God to be righteous. We see this again in Psalm 51.4. David's praying, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. So David isn't saying, I'm making you righteous when you do these things. He's saying, Lord, I am declaring that you are righteous. So we see justification is something that God does. It is him declaring someone righteous, not making them righteous. Dr. Sam Rolden adds these helpful definitions. It is a legal verdict, not a change in moral character. Good theologians sometimes call this the forensic, what is said, justification. Webster's Dictionary says it's a characteristic of or suitable to a law court or public debate. So it's a very objective public thing. It is Declaring someone to be righteous, not making them righteous. So if that is what justification is, why do we need to be justified? Perhaps some of you this morning, as in back in May, were wondering, well, why do we need to be justified? Well, it's because every single one of us are guilty before a holy, righteous God to whom we all have to do. Our creator, our lawgiver, we are guilty before him. For this is what the scriptures say. For it is appointed for mankind to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And the soul that sins shall die, for the wages of sin is death. What is sin? The scripture says sin is the transgression of the law. What is the law? Well, we see this moral law of God inculcated in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. Number two, you shall not make any idols. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
Number four, you shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not lie. And number ten, you shall not covet. And all of these commandments are summed up in the two greatest commands, which are you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of us in this room have broken these commandments, and therefore we stand guilty before our Creator. We are guilty rebels in the sight of God. Now maybe some of you are saying, I may have broken some of those commandments, but not all of them. Perhaps I will find leniency with the Lord. I have maybe broken a few, but not all of them. Well, the Apostle James says this to you in James 2.10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point is guilty of it all. So if you think that you can be righteous before the Lord by keeping his commandments, and you're doing pretty well, but you stumble at one point, the scriptures say that you were guilty of the whole thing. The apostle Paul adds these words in Galatians, And all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So all of us who receive this revelation, all of us who are image bearers before our maker, are beholden to him to obey him. And when we break one of these laws, we are guilty of them all. And when we break these laws, the scriptures say we are cursed because we are not continuing in everything that the book of the law says. So the scriptures say, why do we need to be justified? Because we are guilty rebels that are under a curse from God. We are guilty, guilty, guilty before God. And there's nothing we can do to satisfy his righteous demands. As we just saw in the Psalms, David prays, Thy commandments are exceedingly broad. They go down to the deepest part of the heart. Jesus says, If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have broken the law. Even if you've not committed the outward act, you've already broken it. So if that is sin, if you are just simply in your heart committing that crime, and James says you're guilty of the whole law, do we not see how many times a day we sin against an infinitely righteous God, which requires infinite condemnation? The slightest infraction of the law of God requires an infinite condemnation because it's a sin against an infinite God. This is why justification is so important, because we all have a big, big problem. We face God, who is holy and righteous, immutable, perfect, who dwells in unapproachable light. No one can come near him. And yet we think we can bring some of our righteousness to him. But our righteousness is filthy rags, says Isaiah. So what is the question then if you're here this morning thinking, well, maybe I am guilty. How are you to be justified before this holy flaming Lord of glory. How are you to be justified? The simple answer, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Our righteousness is worthless. It doesn't mean anything. Our righteousness is worthless. We need what the scriptures say. We need the righteousness of God. So what is the righteousness of God? Paul in Philippians 3 says this, But what things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. We need someone else's righteousness, and that righteousness is of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, we need a representative to come and represent us before the Father and produce a righteousness which we by ourselves could not produce. We all fell as a collective whole in Adam in the sin in the garden. When he fell, all of humanity fell, and we were all plunged into darkness. We're all guilty before the Lord because of that, and we add on to that with our own sins. So we need a second Adam, the scriptures say, a last Adam to come in and produce a holiness by which we can be justified with. We need someone to pay for our sins and then also produce a positive righteousness so that we can be just before God. Now, how does the scripture say this comes about? Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We need a covenantal head. We need a federal head to represent us before the Lord. Someone that can produce a positive righteousness. And that is what we were singing about early. We need Jesus' life. Jesus came the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He died for our sins. He cleanses us of our unrighteousness. He goes to the cross, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel that I preach to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel, that Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, becomes incarnate, obeys the whole law of God perfectly, not missing one iota, and then produces that positive righteousness and then goes to the cross and then pays for the sins of his people, all those who would trust in him, to wipe their slate clean and then give them his righteousness. And we receive that by faith alone. Faith is the channel or the instrument that God gives us by grace to receive that perfect righteousness and have our sins cleansed. We need both. We need what the scriptures talk about as a double imputation. We need Christ to impute and give us perfect righteousness. And we need our sins to be dealt with and paid for, which is imputed to him on the cross. We see this in Romans 3, 21 through 26. and Romans 4, Paul starts talking about this imputation. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Paul goes on in Romans 4 to say, What shall we say then that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness or imputed to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, 
giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. And it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this imputation of righteousness that comes from him by faith and the imputation of our sin to him. One of my favorite Greek words is logizomai, and that's where we get this, uh, this word imputation or accounting or to credit. Paul is saying, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when God gives you that grace to trust in Christ alone, God imputes credits, accounts to your account, his righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness, and your sins are put to Christ and his blood covers them. This is the great exchange. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel. This is the pure truth of justification by faith alone, imputation of Christ's righteousness to us who need it. That is the substance of the Reformation. That was what the Reformation was about. And not only was that the confession of the Reformation, as I hope to show you now, it is the confession of all the true saints down through the years. So number two, the great cloud of witnesses. So we saw justification by faith alone, what is sola fide? And now we're going to see the great cloud of witnesses, the rallying cry of the redeemed, those who have confessed this truth to be true and continued marching on following Jesus Christ no matter what the cost was. So I hope you would suffer with me for a little moment. We're going to be going through some quotes from early church fathers down through the centuries, first, second, third, fourth, fifth century, showing that this is what the church believed. This is what the New Testament says. Now, did they believe it right after the apostles died? I hope to show you that this is exactly what they believed. First century, Clement of Rome, writing around 94-95 AD, even probably while the Apostle John was still alive. Clement of Rome writes this, Clement of Rome, that is. Let us steadfastly look unto the blood of Christ, and let us see how precious under God his blood is, which shed, um, being shed on account of our salvation has brought to the whole world the grace of repentance. All the ancient fathers descended from Abraham, but before the law and under the law were glorified and magnified not through themselves, nor through their works of righteousness, which they had done, but through God's will. Therefore we also, being called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves, neither through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we have done in holiness of heart, but through faith. That faith through which the Almighty God has justified all that ever lived. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Polycarp, also writing around this time, more second century, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. He writes this, The Lord Jesus Christ, who endured to submit under death for our sins, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of hell, in whom ye believe, not having seen, but believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, knowing that through grace you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Same testimony as the scriptures are saying. This apostolic father, this writing in the epistle of Diognetius says this, 
God gave his own son the ransom for us, the holy for the transgressor, the good for the evil, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what save his righteousness could cover our sins? And whom it was possible that we, transgressors, ungodly as we are, could be justified, save in the Son of God alone. O oh, sweet interchange, O oh, unsearchable operation, O oh, unexpected benefit, that the transgression of many should be hidden in one righteous person, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Here we are in the second century, the same confession being made from the scriptures. We are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, not of our works, but of Christ's righteousness. Now we're in the second century, more moving into the third century. We have the disciple of Polycarp, Irenaeus, saying this, one of the great church fathers, as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners and forfeited life, so it behooved also that through the, dis through the obedience of one man who was first born from the virgin, many should be justified and receive salvation. The Apostle Paul says in the epistle to the Romans, but now, without the law, the righteousness of God is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. For the just shall live by faith, but that just shall live by faith has been foretold by the prophets. We go on to Cyprian in the third century. This is marching on hundreds of years now after the apostles have died. Cyprian, bishop in Carthage in North Africa, says this, What person was more priest of the Most High God than our Lord Jesus Christ, who offered a sacrifice under God the Father? If Abraham believed in God and was imputed to him for righteousness, then each one who believes in God and lives by faith is found to be a righteous person, and long since, and faithful Abraham is shown to be blessed and justified. And now in the fourth century, during the Arian controversy, Athanasius, who is the bishop in Alexandria, writes this, Not by these, but by faith a man is justified, as was Abraham. And no other manner can there be redemption and grace to Israel and to the Gentiles, except the original sin, which through Adam passed unto all, be loosed. But this, says the apostle, can be blotted out through no other than through the Son of God. It is necessary, therefore, to believe the Holy Scriptures, to confess Him who is the first fruits of us, to be struck with wonder at the great dispensation, to fear not the curse which is from the law, for Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Hence, the full accomplishment of the law, which was made through the first fruit, is imputed to the whole mass. There is that same language. It is a one-stringed harp through century after century after century. It is the same confession of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. We see this also in Jerome, who is the great translator of the Latin Vulgate. He's, very, he's venerated in the Roman Catholic Church. Jerome says this, writing in the fourth century, God justifies the ungodly through faith alone, not on account of good works, which he possessed not. Otherwise, on account of his ungodly deeds, he ought to have been punished. Christ, who knew no sin, the Father made sin for us, that as a victim offered for sin was in the law called sin. So likewise, Christ, being offered for our sins, received the name of sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not our righteousness, not in ourselves. And this goes on and on and on. I have more quotes for the sake of time. I won't go through them. I'll read one more here. This is Anselm, writing in the 11th century. This is a medieval theologian. This is a good 900 to 1,000 years since the apostles died. Anselm writes this. 
Dost thou believe that thou can be sa- cannot be saved but by the death of Christ? Go to. And whilst thy soul abideth in thee, put all thy confidence in his death alone. Place thy trust in no other thing. Commit thyself wholly to his death. Cover thyself wholly with this alone. Cast thyself wholly on his death. Wrap thyself wholly in his death. And if God should judge you, say, Lord, I place the death of the Lord Jesus Christ between me and thy judgment. Otherwise, I will not contend or enter into judgment with thee. And if he shall say unto thee, Thou art a sinner, say unto him, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and my sins. If he shall say unto thee that thou deserve damnation, say, Lord, I put the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between thee and all my sins. I offer his merits for my own, which I should have and have not. If he say that he is angry with thee, say, Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and thy anger. End quote. I hope you are seeing this continued theme of the saints down through the ages putting their faith in the righteousness of Christ alone, and they received it by faith alone. As the hymn writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That was the hope of true saints down through the ages. But sadly, though these confessions were being made, though these men were writing and encouraging saints in this truth, A seed of corruption was also springing up amongst them as the centuries went on after the death of the apostles. The bishop of Rome began to accumulate more power and influence as the centuries went on to eventually calling himself the Pope. And as the father of the universal church, this led into what was called the teaching magisterium, which was the Roman papacy deciding what is and is not tradition and what is and is not scripture. And therefore, through the teaching magisterium of the Roman papacy, they decide what is and is not scripture and is not tradition. And therefore, teachings such as these began to arise through the centuries alongside this pure gospel. We see the teaching that one is justified through the waters of baptism. In the Roman Catholic teaching, as an infant, you are baptized and you are justified by that baptism. And as you go on throughout life, you must continue in this process of justification through the infused grace which the church gives you through the sacraments. One of them being confession. Because as they know, as many know, people fall into sin. If you commit a mortal sin, which is more grievous than a normal venial sin, you lose the grace of justification, so you need it returned to you. So you must go to a priest, confess your sins, and receive forgiveness of sins, and then do penance to make up for those sins. And then, throughout the week and throughout the life, you go to the Mass, which is transubstantiation. The priest, who is an alto Christos, a Christ in the flesh, offers up a wafer and the wine and calls Christ down from his dwelling place in heaven and, and, and changes the substance of the bread and wine to make it the literal body and blood of Christ. And you can ingest it. And you can worship it because it's Jesus Christ right there. And that grace that is infused to you, you work out to produce a justification that pleases God. And most likely, by the time you die, you will not have reached enough to be justified. So you go to purgatory, where you burn off the remaining sins and things that you owe to God until you can be freed to heaven. Now, you can shorten your time in purgatory because there's good news. Some saints, some Christians have done more than enough to be justified in this life, and their extra works called super-irrigation, works of super-irrigation, are deposited to the papacy in Rome, and they can dispense 
that good work to people through indulgences. You can buy indulgences. You can do different things to earn an indulgence. And you can send down that treasury of merit, those good works to people in purgatory or to yourself to shorten your time in purgatory. And then you can go to heaven. So basically, you justify yourself through a process of infused grace throughout your life through a system that was set up by Jesus when he died. Jesus does not save you instantaneously. Justification is not an act of God. It is a process throughout your life, which you most likely won't attain, so you go to purgatory and hope that people above are sending down grace from the treasury of merit. What can be more opposite of what we just saw in the scriptures and then in the confession of the early church? It is a complete adultery of justification by faith. In essence, to be all fair, the Roman Catholic institution does say, yes, Jesus is necessary for salvation, but human works must appropriate that grace through the system which he died to set up, and then hopefully you get justified. So Jesus died to set up a system whereby we might possibly be saved, instead of Jesus died to save his people from their sins. Roman Catholic scholar Ludwig Ott, in his book, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, says this, just, so you, just to make sure you know that I'm being fair here. He says this himself. The reason for the uncertainty of the state of grace lies in this, that without a special revelation, nobody can know with certainty that their faith has justified them or fulfilled the conditions which are necessary for achieving, achieving justification, end quote. I'll read that one more time. The reason for the uncertainty of the state of grace lies in this, that without a special revelation, nobody can with certainty of faith know whether or not he has fulfilled all the conditions which are necessary for achieving justification. That is completely opposite of what we've seen. You can know that you are justified. You can have assurance of salvation. And it says it straight in the scriptures. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. His righteousness is imputed to you. His blood cleanses you of all unrighteousness. That's what the scriptures say. But the Roman Catholic institution says no. You can't know that for certainty. You, no one can know that for certainty. Essentially, it's trust in the church and hope for the best when you die. Behold the power of God. Well, praise God that though that darkness encircled the continent of Europe for hundreds of years, he did not leave his people nor leave humanity lost in that dungeon. Though through the years men were beginning to raise up against this teaching like Peter Waldo and John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, he raised up a man named Martin Luther 500 year, 504 years ago today. Martin Luther, a monk, who began to read the scriptures in the original language for himself, began to see what I just showed you from the scriptures briefly, that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And Martin Luther said when he saw this teaching, he says as it were that the gates of heaven opened up and he could stand upon his head with joy because he was trying to justify himself through the system of the Roman Catholic Church. When Luther saw this, he nails his 95 Theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg 504 years ago today and sparked what we know as the 
Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. From there, he translates the scriptures into the German tongue. And from there, other reformers start to rise up and translate the scriptures into the tongues of their people. For at this time, the Roman Catholic Church had made the scriptures only accessible in the dead language of Latin, so the people could not read the scriptures for themselves. But reformers were raised up to translate the scriptures into the tongues of the people so that people could understand what the scriptures teach concerning justification by faith alone. And from there... Millions were saved. The gospel broke forth of its chains and went around the world. Nations were freed and the gospel was preached. And we here today, this morning, we are here because of that. Now, to do this justice, to tell the full story of the Reformation, I neither have time nor the ability to do so. So I bring before you a poetic, dramatic, as it were, retelling of the story of the Reformation by Gratian Guinness in his book, Romanism and the Reformation. I insert in this section here my own ode to William Tyndale. So please listen to the story of the Reformation, beginning here. Gratian Guinness says this, In the first place, the Protestant Reformation was encountered by a tremendous papal reaction. The rising wave of life and liberty was met by a counterwave of resistance. Hardly was the ship of Protestant church set free and launched upon the deep that there arose a mighty tempest. The resurrection of the slain witnesses of Christ and the person of the reformers were answered by a resurrection of all the powers of the pit. The awakening of men's souls brought war, ecclesiastical and civil, a war of anathemas, a war of extermination. Swords flashed forth. Flames were kindled. Rome rose in its anger and its might and did wondrously. She thundered excommunications. She slaughtered millions. Not without an awful struggle would the prince of darkness give up his kingdom. No. Look to it, you brave reformers. You will need the army of heaven and its help. For the hosts of hell are roused against you. You may conquer, but it shall be through strife and anguish and seas of blood. Draw up your confessions of faith, ye blessed restorers of pure gospel. Dare to give them to the world if you will, but you shall be stoutly answered. Against your confession of Augsburg, Rome shall erect her council of Trent. She shall formulate her canons and decrees. She shall impose her creeds of Pius IX and utterly and utter her chorus of anathemas. Rise up, O Luther. Cry out concerning the Babylonian captivity of the church. Burn the papal bull. Rouse Germany. But you shall have your match. Satan shall bring forth his Loyola, and Loyola his Jesuits, subtle, learned, saintly in garb and name, protein and form, infinite in disguises, innumerable scholars, teachers, theologians, confessors of princes, politicians, rhetoricians, causets, instruments keen and unscrupulous, double-edged, Men fitted to every sphere and every enterprise. They shall swarm against the church of the Reformation. Each one wise in the wisdom and strong in the strength, which are not from above, but from beneath. Rise up, Zwingli, thou lion of Zurich. Lead forth thy brave Swiss against the enemies of liberty and truth. But ye must perish on the field of battle, ere your cause succeed. Rise forth, fair flower of France. Strive, ye brave Huguenots, for your country's freedom and for the faith of the gospel. But Paris shall run with your blood. You shall fall like leaves from a tree shaken by a tempest. You shall lie in heaps 
like rubbish in the streets. Your body shall choke the streams. They shall rot in rivers. They shall hang in chains. They shall be shoveled into cemeteries or buried in dung heaps. Rome shall sing her joy bells and fill her cathedrals and palaces with acclamations because the massacre of St. Bartholomew has overthrown for a time the work of the Reformation in France. Rise up, Master William. Use thy mind which God has given thee. Translate the scriptures into the mother tongue of England so that a boy driving the plow will have better theology than his corrupt bishop. Defy Henry VIII, flee to the Netherlands, where thou shalt live out thy years as a bachelor and an outlaw, smuggling Bibles back to the people of England. But you shall face your own Judas, that snake, Henry Phillips. He shall deceive thee and become thy friend in order to betray thee. You will be handed over to the authorities to die the martyr's death. But play the man and pray thy final prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And give up the ghost. Break thy chains, O England. Rome shall find means to rivet them again. Thou shalt have thy bloody Mary and thy fires of Smithfield. Protestant bishops shall burn for it. Against the secret isle, Spain shall send her proud armada. A fleet of 130 great ships of war shall come against the seas. Twelve of them, named after the twelve apostles. They shall be laden with troops, with swords, guns, priests, and Jesuits. The Pope shall bless the, their banners. Woe to thee, O England, if heaven help thee not, if its winds forsake thy cause. End quote. I bring all these things to you, brothers and sisters. Do you not see what great cost it was to recover the gospel of Jesus Christ? Millions of people died to bring the gospel back from its, the pits of hell, as it were. We see these brave men and women confessing the truth of justification by faith alone and being put to death for it, being burned at the stake, being beheaded. And yet they continued on. They continued preaching this gospel. They continued translating the scriptures. They continued going forth, proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that it sets men's souls free. But that they were destroyed for it. What else could I say, brothers and sisters? I don't have time to talk about Calvin and Bucer and Cramner, and the Puritans like John Owen and Benjamin Keach, John Bunyan, men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, and modern men like Sproul and Reisinger, all who made the good confession and continued on in this train of witnesses down through the centuries proclaiming the same gospel of Jesus Christ and paying for it dearly. Everything in this world is trying to corrupt and distort the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are not discerning, our souls will fall into grave danger. This is not a secondary matter. This is the gospel. And if you have not believed this gospel, you should utterly cast yourself on the mercy and grace of God found by faith alone and the person of work of Christ alone. For if you do not trust in this, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness by which you can be justified, you are utterly lost. You have nothing to look forward to but a fearful expectation of judgment when the Lord Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire to invict judgment on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel, this pure gospel, 
which has been clung to by saints for thousands of years, is the only way to be saved. And I urge you this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are an unbeliever, unconverted, repent of your sins. Repent of your lawless deeds. And rest solely. Put your faith wholly in all that Jesus is and all that he has done. His blood can cleanse you from your foul sins and his righteousness can be imputed to you by faith alone whereby you can be justified. And now we start arriving at the text that was read this morning. Hebrews 11. You see, not only from the times in the New Testament through the centuries and the millennia down till now was this truth confessed, but so was in the Old Testament. Saints before Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for sins, believed in the coming Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent and free men and women from the pains of death and from the law. So this great cloud of witnesses extends from the beginning of time up into this day. A great cloud of witnesses. Beginning in Hebrews 11, Paul says this, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the foreigners. Women received their dead, raised up to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, of chains and of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted and tormented, of whom the whole world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having promised something better for us, that they should not obtain it or be perfect apart from us. And we've seen more had to come. More saints had to come confessing the same truth. So, in light of these things, in light of the truth of justification by faith alone, in light of the great cloud of witnesses which I have tried so imperfectly to show you today, this great heritage of the saints of Jesus Christ, in light of all these things on this Reformation Day, my brethren, I read Hebrews 12 to you, this exhortation from Paul. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. My brethren, my friends, my family, look unto Jesus Christ the great finisher of our faith. Look unto Jesus, who is the leader of this great band and this great cloud of witnesses, who through his suffering, through his trials, through his death, burial, and resurrection, made it possible for all of these souls to be saved. They are not righteous, wonderful people in their own right. They are wonderful and righteous because the Spirit of Christ dwells within them. And they are imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the psalm or the hymn goes this way. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? My question to you this morning is, do you follow in this glorious train of saints that we've read about, that I've tried to show you? Do you follow in this glorious train of brave men and women who saw this truth from the scriptures, who God gave grace to see it and then confessed it and proclaimed it, even at the cost of their lives, even at the cost of their comforts, even at the cost of their own freedom? Are you part of this glorious train? I don't know about all of you this morning, but I don't want to be a part of anything else. I don't want to be a part of any other group. These are the most glorious people that have ever lived on this earth, and it's because they are following the most glorious person, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you following them? Are you following them who is following the Lord unto the eternal glories of heaven? I leave you two points of application this morning. One, read their stories. Become acquainted with this great cloud of witnesses. We in the English-speaking world have an embarrassment of riches at our disposal. Take advantage of them. Learn what the people of God have gone through. Learn your history. Know your history, especially the history of God's people. And number two, semper reformanda. The second application point is this rallying cry, this this word that was used much in the Reformation, which is always reforming. Semper reformanda. It's a Latin term meaning always reforming. The Reformation is not over. We're not celebrating as something great that happened once, and it's like it's fun to look back upon. The Reformation is not over. What areas in your life is God calling you to reform? What areas do you need to submit to the Scriptures what areas are you not in line with when it comes to what God has revealed for his church? What areas are we in this church not reforming in? What areas do we need reform? My friends, I ask you, are you a son or daughter of the Reformation? These saints reach out their hands to you this morning. These saints, these glorious witnesses of Jesus Christ, reach out to your, their hand to you this morning and beckon you along the path with one hand and point to the Lord Jesus Christ on there saying, follow us as we follow the Lamb of God wherever he goes. Do you follow? Do you want to follow in this glorious train? Following the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Messiah, our elder brother, who blazed the trail back to the Father through the veil of his flesh, and who brings many sons and daughters to glory. As it says in the scriptures, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and a few there be that find it. Follow Jesus Christ on this straight, narrow path, as many of these other saints did. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Brethren, salvation is of the Lord, and the just shall live by faith. And we know this because scriptures show us that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this heritage that we receive. We thank you, Father, for the Reformation. We thank you for the great revival that swept over Europe 
and that freed men and women's souls from the corruption of bondage. We thank you that the gospel sprang forth from there and went over all the world as it continues to do this day. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we have not been faithful. Forgive us for the ways, Lord, we have not sought to bring reformation to our own lives and have been content with where we are at. Help us, Lord. Please bring reformation to your church in this late hour. Help us to remember, O Lord, the saints of the past following you. Help us to be like them, as it says in Hebrews, be imitators of those who by faith obtain the promises. Help us, O Lord, to do this. Please bless our time this day. Let our tongues be filled with the things of God. Let us speak one another words of affirmation and edification from the scriptures. And help us, Lord, to do your will. We love you. We trust you. Let your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Brother Nick. Uh, praise the Lord, not only for the historical reminder of how important sola fide is, but the biblical reminder of how central it is to all of our lives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that we'll take that exhortation to heart that you will indeed take up and read, take up and read the scriptures, take up and read your history, and know this rich heritage that you have that's been passed on to you, this declaration of grace alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Now before I pray for our meal, hear the words from Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And we know that Christ did not die needlessly. He died to save us, so let us trust and believe in him. Would you pray with me for our meal? Father, thank you for this Reformation Sunday. Lord, this day when we remember your great work of refining your people. Lord, of preserving your word. We know that your word has been decreed to endure. It will remain forever. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we are the beneficiaries of that great work that began 504 years ago and even before then, Lord, as we have received benefit from it, may we be as earnest and eager to pass it on for the generations to come. Lord, we thank you for food. Lord, it is such an expression of your goodness and kindness towards us, and I pray that we would receive it with thanksgiving today. More than that, I thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Lord, may it be truly a blessing to our souls to gather together and to share a meal together for the glory of your name. Lord, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would be honored in all that we do here this day together. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 May you go in peace.